I'll tell you this, public safety to me is not a, it's not a Democrat issue, it's not a Republican issue, it's, it is a, it's a public safety issue. What do you recommend in terms of reform? What, just from your experience? You know, yeah, yeah I'd like uh, to be in that family. <laughs> <laughs> Guys arrested immediately, was released. She had no idea he went in and out the door. And now, the safety zone. Thank you and welcome to another episode of The Safety Zone with Mike McCarty. And Mike, we have a, a really unique and great program today because we have a special guest, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. We have Chief Josh Brueger from Pasadena, Texas. And so, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Josh, maybe to help our listeners really understand where we're going here in a little bit, but really, if you don't mind just kind of walking them through, hey, how'd you end up in law enforcement? I come from a long family of law enforcement. I joke either the men in my family were in policing or prison, and I <laughs> chose the uh, policing route. So how'd you get involved in policing? You come from a family of police, or how, how did that work? So I have an uncle. He was a cop in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, my mom's whole family was from up there. And so um, I just looked up to him as a kid. And I, I remember in the 10th grade, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And ever since then, I really set my sights on that. I went to college, got a degree in criminal justice. And um, I was 21 and, and joined the police academy and, and moved up through the ranks here. And, and I've been the chief since it'll be two years in January. Time flies. But prior to that, I, I've worked really all over the department. Um, I spent a lot of time as a young officer on the DWI task force. And then I went to investigations. I worked in violent crime, burglary and theft, did a little tour in internal affairs, promoted lieutenant, served as patrol lieutenant. Then I was assistant chief for about five and a half years. And again, over all three bureaus of the department, I was blessed two years ago to be appointed the chief here. And so it's exciting. And it's just one of those careers that it's really rewarding. And to me, it's it's really what you make of it. Mm. You know, you, you get out what you put in. And so for perspective, some of our listeners may not be from Texas, Pasadena's in the Houston area. Actually, I was there last fall meeting with your local school district on some of the solutions we offer. Are you from that Houston area then, Josh, or were you from Ohio originally yourself? No, I actually grew up north of Houston. I always tell the story. My, my dad went up there one winter, met my mom and said, you're either marrying me or we're going back to Texas or I'm going back by myself because it was too cold up there. So, um yeah, I am. So I've lived in the Houston area pretty much all my life other than a couple of years where we lived overseas. But other than that, I, I grew up here. And like I said, we're a large suburb of Houston. Uh, we have a population of about 165,000 people and uh, we have just under 300 sworn cops. And so we're actually a pretty large agency. We just get overshadowed by Houston, which isn't bad. I let them take the negative press, but it's, you know, we have all the challenges that big cities have here. Yeah. And uh, Josh, you mentioned one thing I cued in on. You were part of the domestic violence unit there with Pasadena. Did you help start that? I, I helped start the domestic violence unit in Nashville, Tennessee, back in about the same time the Violence Against Women Act was passed back in 1994. So I have a real heart for the law enforcement response to domestic violence. So give me a little bit of more about that program that you were part of. So actually, I, I started the DWI task force, uh, driving while intoxicated. But when I was in violent crimes, I was a supervisor over domestic violence. And that's always been, I guess, near and dear to my heart because it's such a huge problem that people don't realize. And we just had a run last week here to recognize the victims of uh, domestic violence homicides here. And I was speaking to our cadets in our academy, you know, and people don't understand 
the cycle, I guess, and you understand it from working it, but it's not as easy as people think just to get out of a domestic violence situation. And so that's a challenge because a lot of these women, most of the time it's women, become financially dependent um, because they don't work and, and things like that. And so it's a lot more challenging than just, I don't get why she just doesn't leave. I hear that a lot. And, and so it's a complicated issue. And, and so we actually have piloted on a program right now where we're trying to identify our high-risk victims of domestic violence and how can we give them better services. And in the past, we'd wait till even the next business day for, for social workers to get out there and services. And, and one of the things we're doing now is we've teamed up with some of the social workers here and we have social workers that'll go out there at three o'clock in the morning if they need to. And so it's really been positive, but it's I say a systemic problem. It's it's one of those crimes that it transcends all nationalities, all races, all socioeconomic groups, um, all occupations. And so it makes it unique in that and coming up with creative strategies to, to deal with it. Well, it's interesting because we're going to talk about bail reform in a little bit. But as I'm listening to you speak and we're talking about social workers and their response, there's been this notion thrown out over the last two or three months about maybe we should defund the police. We can have social workers respond to these calls. And I know you're sitting right there next to Houston. I know Sergeant Harold Preston was killed here recently, Houston PD. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was a domestic violence related incident. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking through that, but as we're talking through some of these policies that are coming out around the country and some of this thinking, mm -hmm. when you start looking at violence against women and children and these crimes... <laughs> What's your thinking in terms of let's turn that over to social workers and let them be the first responders here? It's not going to succeed. I, I believe that that's a recipe for failure. You're going to end up with social workers getting hurt. I mean, if you have a police officer getting killed here in Houston or a sergeant getting killed here in Houston, imagine a social worker that can't defend themselves. And so there is a place for social worker and working hand in hand, but it can't be a replacement, at least in my opinion, uh, uh, for law enforcement. We need to work together really on the back end, but should not be a replacement for law enforcement being the first responders to deal with those situations because they are very volatile. And, and so you've got to have that that law enforcement presence. But I do think there is a place for so social work on the back end, just not a replacement. Yeah, I, I agree. It's that team approach. Mm. Yes. And that, and that really includes a, a lot of aspects, right? Chief of the community and, and including faith-based groups, including churches. Absolutely. And, you know, just the partnerships, because we can't do it by ourselves. And that's one of the things I, I think is frustrating, especially for law enforcement right now, is we are being thrust into the middle of a lot of these situations that, well, we have training, we're not social workers. But that doesn't, we still have to be the first responders. And so, you know, talk about trying to deal with the homeless, substance abuse problems, domestic violence, mental health, all of these things. And the thing with law enforcement, we're there 24 seven, you call and we're going to come and, and we've got to, but we've got to depend on our partners on the back end. And that, that includes mm -hmm. faith based. And that's one of the things that we're doing right now is trying to partner with some of our faith based organizations mm -hmm. to, to be better partners and, you know, not just specifically domestic violence, but really that outreach in, as I like to say a lot, trying to be a part of the community and not apart yeah, from the community. Exactly. And that's a, a huge way to reach out to folks um, is mm -hmm. through our faith-based community. And so we, uh, we're capitalizing on that right now. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when they, the local churches or the local uh, nonprofit organizations, they're working many times one-on-one -on -one with those families and especially those at risk. And I think, Mike, you've said it before, the faith-based organizations aren't exempt from child abuse, from all mm -hmm. the crimes that we see and domestic violence included. Yep. 
right? And I think one of the things that we can do better really as a society is working together because mm-hmm. it seems like everybody's working in their in their own little silos. The churches yeah. are working through domestic violence issues with their parishioners yeah. and we're dealing in on one end. And so it's all these, if we could work together and really yes. leverage our resources together, I think we could be so much more effective in so many areas. Yes. Absolutely. Well, let's move on and talk about this this concept of bail reform. And so why don't you give us a little foundation for that? Some may have seen, like I mentioned, what's happened in New York. They've talked about arrest and immediately released. And so the law enforcement are dealing with the same person within minutes or hours sometimes of an arrest. So foundationally, Josh, just give us a little, give our listeners a little background on bail reform. So over the last couple of years, there's been a push for, as part of the criminal justice reform packages, is bail reform. And I think it initially began, particularly with low-level misdemeanor offenses and folks languishing in jail, waiting for a trial date, whatever the case may be, on low-level offenses. And so that's where it started. But it seems to have really taken over. And it's it's not just a Texas thing. You're seeing this New Jersey, uh, New Mexico, Alaska, California, I know, has a proposition coming up uh, for a vote tomorrow. And, and so you see it nationwide right now. And, you know, the thing I always tell folks when you start talking about reform is it's got to be thoughtful. You have to think of all of the consequences, sometimes the unintended consequences that happen with events like this. And that's where I think, especially lawmakers, uh, just you need to be careful because it's the unintended consequences sometimes that we're seeing of a well-intended bill or well-intended reform that can have negative consequences if we don't think it all the way through. And so I'll tell you here in Harris County, we saw it in the misdemeanor side. But like I said, it's now pushed over to the felony side. We, we've even had aggravated robbers, you know, here in Texas, it's putting a deadly weapon and pointing at somebody, robbing a store at gunpoint, getting PR bonds. And so we've taken it from, you know, the minor traffic offense or the the low-level narcotics charge all the way up to an aggravated robbery. And that, to me, is where it's scary because mm-hmm. I think most people in this country would delineate between a low-level marijuana possession arrest and an aggravated robbery case. And so painting with a broad brush, I think, is not the best course. I don't think people typically associate Texas with those kind of <laughs> reform, right? Yeah, So Texas, I'll tell you this just real quick, it's 254 counties. And so you see the major metropolitan areas, I'll just say you see different things than you do in the more rural areas or when you get out. And so there is quite a difference, bail, punishment, all those depending on where you're at. I think you used a key phrase that we speak a lot because we are fairly politically active as it relates to I mean, though I'm no longer in law enforcement, I've had a company for 16 years. It's all about keeping people safe. But unintended consequences, if if I had a dime for every time that comes up on a bill, I'd retire. And (laughs) we had a perfect example a few years ago, and you probably have seen the same thing in Texas, passing these expungements laws, and it's wiping things away. Now, you get to still see it as a law enforcement officer, but companies and organizations that are doing background checks. It's as if it doesn't exist. And it makes perfect sense. Just like you talked about bail reform, if the targeted audience is your guy with marijuana in his pocket or those type of low level misdemeanor, what happened here, because there were some loopholes, we twice that we know of found a convicted sex offender that had had his 
record expunged. And so there was a loophole in the statute. So we had to work to get that closed. But you talk about unintended circumstances mm -hmm. and consequences. The one, because we had ran a background check before, we had it in our database. So when it popped up, and there and it wasn't showing up in the courts anymore this is a guy who would have tried to volunteer at three different schools and at this last point he was trying to go on an overseas mission trip pre-covid with a church ministry with youth and so sometimes we see this reform and even policy makers without it being well thought through Mm -hmm. How does this put communities at risk? And that's really what we care about is people understanding, A, you have a voice, use it. Right. And two, really, you know, help us understand outside of New York and New Jersey, when you're talking about Pasadena, Texas, how does this bail reform, how's it going to impact or could impact your community? So I'll say this. I think the frustrating thing for me, you know, and I try to stay out of politics, but it's difficult sometimes. But I'll tell you this. Public safety to me is not a it's not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. Mm -hmm. It's it is a it's a public safety issue. And exactly. I believe the vast majority of people, rich, poor, black, white, whatever, mm -hmm. they want to be safe in their community. And, and so I think that's where we have to be careful not to make these political issues because they're not. It's a public safety issue. And with that said, you know, you talk about how can this affect the neighborhood that you live in or the community that you live in. I'll give you the quick example or a quick story that, that happened to us. We had a, a guy who was arrested by the Houston Police Department actually for his second DWI offense and leaving the scene of an accident. And he got PR bonds on both of those. Um, about six weeks later, he committed a family violence against his wife here in Pasadena. So here he is out on two PR bonds already because those other two cases were already open, picks up a, a misdemeanor family violence case. And within 18 hours, he was released on a PR bond. Mm. And as soon as he was uh, released or shortly after being released, he went back to the apartment and stabbed his, his pregnant wife and killed her and the unborn child. And so you mm. talk about the impact right there. Um, mm. That right there is, you know, one of those impacts that happens. And that's just one of countless stories that are out there that you're seeing as a result of some of these decisions that are being made. And so the, the violent offenses are the ones I, that I really take exception to. And I think that we as a society and as the public need to wake up and, and recognize that I don't think that's who most of us intended this bail reform to apply to. In this particular story, in this um, incident, his first two were those minor uh, offenses. They weren't, you said evading, well, evading accident. But it, it, right. So you talk about minor. So one of the things that, that's supposed to be followed here in Harris County is subsequent, after your first DWI or driving while intoxicated offense. After that, you're not per se eligible for a PR bond. That means the judge could right. still do it down the road. In this case, he very quickly got PR bonds on both of those offenses. And so mm. I don't take as much exception to those two, to be honest with you. Where yeah. I come into is if you're already out on two PR bonds, to me, those are your, I, I don't want to call them freebies, but those are your two freebies, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And, and then to turn around and get another one, particularly for an offense that involves violence. Right. You know, one of the things about that arrest and the time to get bonded out, generally speaking, without PR bonds, there's usually a cooling off period there a little bit as well. And, right. and so that with the PR bonds, you're not seeing that. And the other thing that you lose, I think, with, with a PR bond, per se, for some of these offenses is if I get arrested, my mom or my dad come down and get me out of jail and they post my bond, I'm now not only accountable to the court, but I'm also accountable to my parents or whoever posted that bond for me. Mm -hmm. And so 
there's an extra layer of accountability, I guess, if you right. will, that's going to make sure that I get to court. That's going to make sure that I stay out of trouble. Is that foolproof? Of course not. But I think you're you're losing that when people don't have skin in the game, I guess, if you will. Right. Well, I think when we first talked, immediately I was thinking about domestic violence, even before mm-hmm. you shared that story. I mm-hmm. spent 25 plus years, both as inside a police department and outside working on the issue of domestic violence. But I mean, one of the first things that we were really dealing with is that cool off period you're talking about. And you're familiar with the Vine program. Some of listeners may not be, but the Vine program was birthed 25, 30 years ago because in Louisville, Kentucky, guys arrested a immediately was released. She had no idea. He went in and out the door in just a matter of hours, came back and killed her. And somebody scratched their head and said, you know what? First thing we need to do is have some kind of warning system they can sign up for that says, hey, he's getting out of jail. She's getting out of jail so you can protect yourself. So it's almost like we've spent the last 25 or 30 years making progress to protect many victims that can't protect themselves And now in one swoop of a pen or pencil, we're going to undo a lot of those protections. Right. People being victimized that you you have domestic violence victim that's tried to do the right thing. It's a big step for many women. Again, it's not just women, but most times just to pick up the phone and call the police and report it and then to turn around and have them essentially, as soon as they walk in the front door of the jail, they're walking out the back door of the jail. That can be demoralizing. It can have a negative impact on them calling the police in the future if it happens again. And so again, those those consequences that are happening because of this, that that's victims being re-victimized. That, that's really what it comes down to. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> what do you recommend in terms of reform? What, just from your experience, what, what do you see is needed and not, <laughs> and not needed, right? <laughs> right. So I think we need to pump the brakes on the bail reform, at least. And when I say pump the brakes, I'm not saying do away with it. Again, we can always do better. And, and so that's yeah. the thing I always say. And I always tell people, I'm not against bail reform. I, I am for thoughtful bail reform. And I think that, you know, somebody's been given an inch and it seems like they've taken a mile. And so how do we slow down a little bit and low level misdemeanor offenses, nonviolent offenses, somebody's in possession of a firearm, you know, those types of offenses not being eligible for PR bonds, or at least not right away. That to me is a better solution than what we're seeing right now. And Josh, would you say... The foundation for this movement, is it jail overcrowding? Obviously, COVID is not the genesis of this. I'm sure it is probably adding to it very quickly because we saw everybody get them out of our jails. We don't want to be responsible. (laughs) So the real foundation for where this started, is it an overcrowding issue? Is that what the intent? It's twofold, really. One was jail overcrowding, and two is people sitting in jail on low-level, nonviolent offenses strictly because they don't have the financial means to mm-hmm. secure bail to get out of, mm-hmm. of jail awaiting trial. And so those really are the, the two driving factors behind it. But you, you're right, COVID has, has exacerbated the problem to an extent. And I, I don't tell a lot of people this, but I'm actually married to a criminal defense attorney. And so um, <laughs> <laughs> we have interesting conversations. But I said, you know, yeah, yeah, I'd like um, to be in that family. <laughs> <laughs> so, some days we just have to agree to disagree. But <laughs> That's um, the model we need, Chief, right? For our, for our world right in now. In the world, right. In yes. the world. 
right? <laughs> but daily, she's filing motions to get bail for her clients or PR bonds because of COVID. So it has been, again, exacerbated because of COVID and trying to get people out of jail that we don't need in jail right now. But So there are some legitimate, it sounds like some legitimate concerns with certain people that yes. maybe can't afford to pay bail. And, and so they're, they're sitting in jail that don't need to be. But the problem, like always, is it expands into something where it becomes a danger instead of, like you said, being thoughtful. Right. And, and the, the other challenge is from a logistics perspective, and I get that as well, because a lot of locations are doing risk-based assessments on bail, on bail decisions. And so the problem with that is there's a human factor to everything. And so it takes a little bit more time. And so instead of just having a hear ye, hear ye, everybody that is charged with this gets a PR bond, 75% of the time, 80% of the time, that might be appropriate, but there's that other percent that's not. And so that really is where the challenge is, is how do we separate that out? And so as you sit there as the chief, you're looking at this both locally, but you're also looking at it nationally. What do you want people to, to hear? I mean, what, what, do you, what can they do? Is this more about becoming more aware? How can John and Jane Gu Citizen help with this? So, so the biggest thing I tell people is educate yourselves because I, I have policemen here who don't understand the bail process. And they're in the system every day. And so educate yourself on the process. I get out in the community a lot. and I, I have been outspoken locally here on the uh, topic of some of the bail reform. And so when I'm out in the community, you know, I'll be uh, speaking at a homeowner's group and they'll ask me, well, chief, what do we do about this this bail reform? And I, and I tell them, you've got to educate yourself, you know, because the judges to a large extent are the ones that are implementing this bail reform. And so you've got to educate you, educate yourself, know what the topics are. And the one thing, you have a big election tomorrow, you know, it gets all the attention, but really not that the president's not important, but honestly, the local issues are what impact more people on a day-to-day basis. And so Understanding what's going on at the, the local and the state level, to me, that's really just as important as who's sitting in the White House. And people just educate yourself because we don't get to those down ballot issues or, or races sometimes. And just understanding what the topics are and educating yourself from reliable sources. I know I spent uh, many years working on these protective order projects, and it was primarily training the judiciary. And I tell you, it was the least enjoyable thing that I ever did. (laughs) And one of our trainers who'd been around much longer than I had, she said one time, she said, and she was a former judge, she said, as we sat on that bench, it is very difficult for most of them to put them in a position of what it's like to be powerless. And so understanding from a real on the street conceptual level, how these things really work when they get applied, it's just kind of beyond the scope of where they live every day. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Well, Josh, I appreciate you coming on. I think this has a a lot of value to our listeners to understand everything that's going on in their community. I mean, I think we've had a heightened awareness here with everything that's been happening across the country, but just how do we keep our community safe? How do we keep people safe? So we wish you a ton of luck with everything you're doing. Thank you. Yes. And I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Mike, another just incredible, I like to say, servant, um, servant of the community, really, joining us in just the depth of really the issues that we face and, and that we're all in this together and keeping 
people safe, keeping our families safe, our communities safe. And Chief, thank you so much for what you do. Absolutely. Um, it's wonderful to hear you say you enjoy what you're doing. <laughs> Some of us look out and think, oh, wow, what a hard job. It is, but, but thank you for what you do, for your service Absolutely. and just for your disposition, because we can tell that you're a compassionate man and, and you have a heart for people as well. So just thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.